0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about men's health and cancers with Dr. Stan Honig and Katherine Rotkirk. Dr. Honig is a professor of clinical urology and director of men's health in the Department of Urology, and Dr. Rotker is an assistant professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology.
1: So, Dr. Honig, maybe we'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do?
2: Sure. So, my practice has focused over the years on male reproductive health and sexual function. And we focus in on kind of intimacy issues uh, in men across across the lifespan, so and across multiple uh, conditions, some of which involve um, vascular disease like diabetes and hypertension. Others may involve uh, cancer treatments that involve prostate cancer, things like that. We also work closely um, on the reproductive side with sperm-related issues. So uh, we address uh, problems when there is a male factor, such as maybe related to a genetic issue or some kind of cancer uh, treatment, uh, specifically things like testicular cancer, things like that. In fact, it turns out that... um, a certain number of people who present with male factor infertility will present for the first time with some kind of cancer. Uh, It's probably once a year that someone walks in to see us with a fertility problem, and they actually have uh, testicular cancer. So we try to focus on the fact that uh, male fertility issues is a disease process, not just um, a sperm-related problem.
1: And Dr. Rotker, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
3: Sure, yeah. Dr. Honig and I both have similar background in that we are urologists, uh, trained as urologists, and then did additional specialty training in both men's health related to erectile function or hormone levels, as well as men's fertility. So, Stan, you know,
1: you started uh, telling us that – oftentimes, or sometimes at least, um, men may have various issues that they may think are either fertility issues or sexual issues or other issues that may actually be the first signs of cancer. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kinds of cancers are most common in men and how they present?
2: Well, across the board, it depends on the age group. So, for instance, men Uh, who are in their 20s and 40s, uh, the most common cancer is cancer of the testicle. And, you you know, the good thing about cancer of the testicle, and we stress this because men don't like to come to the doctor, but they come actually when they know there's a cure. And of all the cancers out there, testicular cancer is probably one of the most treatable uh, types of cancer. And it's usually picked up on a self-exam. And that's why we, we, We discuss with patients the importance of checking themselves regularly, just like women check themselves for um, breast cancer once a month. We recommend that men check themselves uh, as well. And it usually presents with a lump in the testicle. And if found early, usually is just involves a procedure to take care of that and nothing further. It's usually something like an observational protocol. When it becomes a more advanced type of thing, um, sometimes it involves radiation or chemotherapy, things like that. But the great news there is even when it's an advanced cancer, is very, very treatable. Um, as men get older, the cancers that we see more commonly are things like prostate cancer. And prostate cancer, again, is a treatable cancer and may be treated if it's locally invasive, uh, I mean, locally invasive. Uh, if it's localized to the prostate with either surgery or radiation, things like that. And a lot of the times that will affect uh, the intimacy uh, between with, that a man may have with his partner. So um, in our practice, we stress the importance of um, getting involved early if you develop some kind of intimacy issues with um, this kind of treatment that we have excellent treatments available for patients.
1: And so maybe we can talk a little bit about when should uh, men actually seek treatment or, or at least come to the doctor? Catherine, you know, Stan mentioned if you feel a lump in the testicle or if you start having intimacy issues, are there other things that should prompt men to come to the doctor? Because
3: as Stan says, men don't generally like to come to the doctor. I think that's one of the things I loved about men's health and one of the reasons I got into this, as a urologist, we're not always the first line. Um, Men will see their primary care and get referred to us for a variety of reasons, Um, blood in the urine, kidney stones, concerns on prostate exam. But as a men's health expert, we catch that unique population um, that I describe as having left their pediatrician's office and not yet been forced to (laughs) to see a primary care Um, And so sometimes we can actually be the entrance into the healthcare system. They start having some of those symptoms you mentioned, um, whether that's difficulty with erections or difficulty conceiving with their partner, and that's enough to uh, prompt them to see us, which, again, has dual goals. One, to treat the issue that brought them there, but two, to look at a more global picture of their overall health, and um, that often can make bigger changes for their life beyond just what we're treating from a urology standpoint.
1: And so, Stan, if we dive into the examples that you talked about for the most common cancers, the first being testicular cancer, if a man does find uh, on self-exam a lump in the testicle um, and he comes to see you, uh, what should he expect? I mean, I think part of the hesitation is a, a fear of not having a solution or a cure, but part of it might be not knowing what to expect. So can you guide us through what happens then?
2: Right, so that, that's, I think, an important point because especially when it comes to testicular cancer, the exams that we do are completely painless, they're comp- completely harmless. So there's a private exam um, of the genitals, uh, specifically the testicle, but testicles, But generally speaking, these are well-tolerated. They are painless. And it's just a really, it's a check. Um, So I think men need to know two things. Number one, if they come to the doctor, it's not going to be uncomfortable for them. And two, if they do find something that's concerning, and this is the first thing I say to a patient, and I tell them this, if I feel a lump down there when I start and when I finish, I say, you know, this is, this is a curable problem in 99% of cases, and you're not going anywhere because young men, they come in, uh, they may have started a family or something like that, and they're really anxious about these things. So ensuring them that um, excellent treatment is available and they're not going anywhere, anywhere is, is really important.
1: And so presumably, Catherine, the next step in such a patient is a biopsy. Is that right? So tell us a little bit more about how that happens. I mean, I think that just the prospect of a
3: biopsy of a testicle might not be so appealing for many men. Yeah, I understand that. So actually, next step after examination is generally an ultrasound, as Dr. Honig was saying, a a painless test where um, a probe is used to visualize the testicle better. If there is a suspicious mass concerning for cancer on ultrasound, generally we do not move forward with biopsy if it's suspicious enough, given the very high rates of cancer uh, in these lesions um the next step is to actually remove that uh testicle in a, a surgical procedure um, biopsy of the testicle will be rare. We also do some blood work um, that's done around the time of uh testicular removal. All of this is um under anesthesia, from a surgical standpoint, and um, outcomes from that surgery are very good.
2: And it's a, it's an it's an outpatient procedure as well.
3: Yeah, uh, but from a patient's quality of
1: life and kind of mental health uh, standpoint, do men kind of feel a bit of loss at losing a testicle? And how do you how do you kind of approach that? I can imagine that if you have a a young man he's just starting a relationship and loses a testicle, that might be a little bit devastating.
2: Well, I would say yes and no. It's devastating to have a diagnosis of testicular cancer. The actual need for replacement is, or the fact that you're missing a testicle, can be vary from something that's very important to someone or not very important at all. So it's not uncommon for other patients to come in with only one testicle, They might have lost one when they were younger if it twisted or they had an undescended testicle that didn't grow. So um, it's not that uncommon for a man not to have two testicles, number one. Number two, anyone who's gonna have a testicle removed has the option of having a prosthetic testicle put in at the same time. So I would say maybe 50 to 60% of the time Patients will choose to have a prosthetic testicle that it kind of matches the other one, and they come in small, medium, and large. It's you know very rare to put in anything but a large, um, but um, so it really is patient dependent, and a lot, a lot of times it's where they are in their life, if they're single, if they're married, or just how they kind of see the world.
3: I would add that sort of one where looking at removing a testicle, whether that's for cancer purposes, or as Dr. Honig alluded to, trauma purposes, twisting purposes, as happens um, in that teen to 20 age group. Concerns not only for the cosmetic appearance, in which case there are prosthetics that can be put in, but also what is that going to do to future fertility um, and hormone production. And in many cases, one testicle is enough. So uh, from a fertility standpoint and a um, hormone standpoint for a lot of men, even after removal of a testicle, for whatever reason, outcomes in in those categories are, are very good.
1: And so, Stan, you had mentioned that for many of these patients, that's it in terms of their treatment. After the surgery, many of them can simply be observed. Is that right?
2: Right, so depending on the type of testicular cancer it is, and the most common is something called a seminoma. Um, many of these patients are cured just with removal of the testicle, about seventy to eighty percent, um, and a certain percentage will have a small amount of like cells somewhere else in the body, and a lot of times we'll just watch that those patients, and if they do recur, then they will go on to some kind of further therapy, but probably 80, 85% of patients will be cured just with removal of the testicle.
1: Well, that's that's fantastic.
2: And, and I would reiterate just what Dr. Rotger said about um, having only one testicle, because that, that could be a fear of men. And But their testosterone production is still very good. It doesn't affect their intimacy issues. And if you look at fertility rates, it's actually the same in men who have one testicle versus two. Now, it may be different if you have some kind of cancer of the testicle, but uh, most of those patients are going to end up getting pregnant uh, either way.
1: Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about men's health issues in honor of Men's Health Awareness Month right after this.
0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their Center for Gastrointestinal Cancers provides patients with gastric cancers a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to the treatment of their cancer, including clinical trials. Smilocancerhospital.org. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine. Quitting smoking is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment, as it's been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. All treatment components are evidence-based, and patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Stan Honig and Catherine Rotker. We are discussing men's health issues in honor of Men's Health Awareness Month. Right before the break, we talked about one of the common cancers, one of the very curable uh, cancers that occurs in young men, that being testicular cancer. And just to finish up that discussion, Catherine, um, Stan had mentioned that you know 80% of these can be treated uh, with surgery alone. Tell us a little bit about what uh, might be expected for the other 20%. Who needs systemic therapy
3: and what does that look like? So, outside of that population that Dr. Honig was mentioning that have what is called seminoma, there are a variety of other um, types of testicular cancer, um, generally mixed germ cell tumors. And these can have different protocols based on what is found on that um, pathology. Um, Sometimes this involves chemotherapy, sometimes this involves radiation therapy, and sometimes this involves lymph node removal or further surgical procedures, all very dependent on the type and stage of the cancer found at that point. And again, even with these other types of testicular cancer, cure rates are very good, um, but sometimes more involved than just uh, testicular removal.
1: So, Stan, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, in the older patients, you had mentioned that the most common cancer is prostate cancer. And certainly, um, we've all talked about prostate cancer, heard about prostate cancer. But just give us a a bit of a refresher on the epidemiology of of prostate cancer. How many men gets it? Who get it? And what can that kind of look like?
2: Well, generally speaking, it's a pretty common disease. And maybe 20 years ago, we used to think of prostate cancer as one entity, meaning you have it or you don't. And if you have it, you need treatment. And if you don't, you don't. Um, Really, over the last 10, 15 years, what we've realized is that there are different grades of cancer. And how we treat patients is very dependent upon how aggressive the prostate cancer is. So, for instance, they grade these with something called a Gleason grade, where it's uh, kind of ranges from a from a score of six up to ten, and the sixes are actually very, very minimally aggressive in most cases, and and a certain number will progress. But whereas all patients needed treatment, many patients with these Gleason six um, cancers are actually being Put on an active surveillance protocol. So instead of having um, surgery or radiation, they just have regular either PSAs or biopsies or MRIs to make sure that the cancer isn't progressing. The ones that are kind of the Gleason 7s and more are the ones that require some kind of treatment. If it looks like it's a localized prostate cancer, it usually involves either surgical removal of the prostate or radiation therapy. And then when you get into the more aggressive tumors that look like they're locally advanced, then you get into more systemic therapy that involves kind of taking away some of the male hormones or some uh, more chemotherapeutic regimens that are available to us today.
1: And so, Catherine, when we were talking about testicular cancer, you had mentioned that frequently, you know, if somebody presents with a lump in the testicle and on ultrasound, it looks suspicious, they won't necessarily need a biopsy. They may simply just have the testicle removed. But it sounds like in prostate cancer, that's a little bit different. So can you walk us through kind of how a patient might present with prostate cancer
3: and how they get to a biopsy and what that looks like? One thing I... think not all patients know is that generally prostate cancer is asymptomatic, meaning there's no symptoms associated with it and it's localized early stage. And so it's usually diagnosed in one of two ways. One is through a rectal exam or via blood testing with something called PSA or prostate-specific antigen. And if this blood test shows an elevation or especially a trend towards um, a steep increase, that can be concerning for cancer and another reason that might prompt a biopsy. Over the last decade or more, there's been more use of MRI imaging to also help with the diagnosis and to improve the accuracy of the biopsy. And so after the MRI, uh,
1: presumably they have a biopsy done. Is that done under a general anesthetic or... Um, Because having a needle put into your prostate, I can imagine, is not
3: something that um, would necessarily be very pleasant. That is generally done in the office and a numbing agent is utilized to make the process more comfortable. Um, There is a ultrasound probe that is utilized to visualize the prostate that causes certainly a pressure sensation and I think is one of the Parts patients find most uncomfortable. The biopsy itself, again, with that numbing agent, most men tolerate very well.
1: And so, Stan, you mentioned that, you know, if you've got a Gleason score that's or a Gleason grade that's, you know, under six, you you can kind of, generally speaking, uh, be followed uh, with kind of observation. Tell us more about the people who have the more aggressive prostate cancers in terms of Uh, treatment options. So you mentioned uh, surgery uh, as well as uh, systemic options and radiation. So who gets what?
2: That usually involves probably a good hour conversation with a uro-oncologist, one of our urologists that focus in on prostate cancer. And it really becomes a personalized decision. Um, The the success rate with surgery and radiation is pretty close over a period of time. And then it kind of diverges at about 10 years where uh, surgery seems to give you an overall better response. A lot is patient dependent, a lot is age dependent, things like that. And a lot depends on what the side effects may be with each kind of treatment. And that those are the types of things that Dr. Rotger and myself focus in in our practices is kind of the intimacy issue. So anyone who's considering some kind of treatment, whether it's surgery or radiation, what we try to do is to have a, a visit before they undergo therapy to kind of discuss the intimacy issues. And I think the, the, the several points that we like to stress with patients is that we have treatment options that are available if there are intimacy op- uh, issues after radiation or after surgery, things like that. So we've tried to develop a program where uh, we explain to patients ahead of time that there may be some issues after treatment. And we kind of lay out a plan as to what we can do to to get them back to a functional status sooner rather than later. And I think that's the important part in how we're addressing these male health intimacy issues as it relates to prostate cancer.
1: So, Catherine, can you... Pick up the conversation there. I mean, when we were talking about testicular cancer, uh, the point was made that you know often these patients, um, their sexual function is is pretty good, their fertility is the same as if they didn't lose a testicle, and and certainly in in prostate cancer that. Uh, is asymptomatic and that is managed with observation alone, one would anticipate that they would continue their sexual function just as they did. But after treatment, um, there may be issues. And and so it's nice to know that there are potential treatments for that, but can you give us a little bit more details as to what that might
3: entail? Absolutely. So I think the positive message here is that Because treatments for prostate cancer are so effective, um, there is a long and happy life following these treatments. And that means that the side effects of these treatments um, can be uh, addressed at that point. Uh, And one of the groups of side effects that Dr. Honig and I, again, focus on is sexual health and intimacy. Regardless of the treatment approach, radiation, surgery, otherwise, sexual side effects are common. The good news here is that there are a lot of treatment options. So even though it can be difficult and um, even devastating after cancer treatments to be experiencing this change in what is an important aspect of patients' lives, it is comforting ahead of time and afterwards to know that there are therapies out there that we can always do something to help and that there are people who are focused on that aspect of your life, not just the cancer aspect.
1: And and so, Stan, you know, if we try to get a little bit more granular, I can imagine that um, there may be uh, issues in terms of a lack of desire or libido. I can imagine that there may be issues with erectile dysfunction. Um, there may be issues with ejaculation. Um, so, you know, and, and I would anticipate that there's different modalities to address each of those. So can you talk a little bit about what some of the things might uh, be that men can avail themselves of if they do face any of these issues?
2: Sure. So, um, and each one of those things that you mentioned, I think are important. So let's talk about ejaculation and orgasm first. So after prostate cancer surgery, the organs that contain the ejaculate are removed. But the good news is is that the orgasm should be fine. So the patient may have what's called a dry ejaculate. They'll have the same pleasurable sensation of an orgasm but no fluid comes out. And that brings us to a point about fertility and prostate cancer as well, which is, you know, we think of prostate cancer as an older man's disease, but as we, as we know, there are older men that do consider um, family building and may have prostate cancer. So even someone in his 50s, uh, we try to stress to them the importance of uh, that if you are considering having a family that you freeze sperm, just like we 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 actually wanted to mention as well with testicular cancer to freeze sperm before cons- having a radiation or chemotherapy or surgery, things like that. We stress it as well, even though it's not thought of, it's not at the forefront of what we're thinking about. So they will have um, problems where they will have a dry ejaculate, but the orgasms most of the time should be unaffected. Now, When you remove the prostate, the nerves that control erections sit right next to the um, prostate. And when you remove the prostate, most of the time you try to do some nerve uh, sparing uh, procedures. And sometimes that's possible and sometimes it's not. Um, And if it's not, then pills like Viagra Cialis typically b- will not work. And even if you do spare the nerves, the nerves that kind, of, kind of get banged around, the way I best describe it to patients is that the nerves go to sleep. And the question is, when are they gonna wake up? Are they gonna wake up in two months, four months, six months? 12 months, two years, or are they not going to wake up? And many times they do wake up. And what we try to stress is we look at each patient individually. So we'll see them beforehand. We'll tell them a little bit about what to expect. And then we'll see them maybe three months afterwards and see how they're doing. Are they ready to be intimate? Do they have good control of their urine? Are they back to kind of doing most things? If they're ready to kind of move on, then we will get them on some kind of uh, therapy regimen. If not, we kind of listen to them and see what they want to do.
0: Dr. Stan Honig is a professor of clinical urology and director of men's health in the Department of Urology, and Dr. Catherine Rotker is an assistant professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.